welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Village, Man in the Moon from 1969. Now, the unmistakable bass sound there is Bruce Thomas, fantastic bassist, and had a remarkable career playing with many artists, um, notably with Elvis Costello and the Attractions, but as you heard there, it has a much broader reach. He's got a fantastic new book out, The Open Road, which has got more tales from his uh, life and career there. First of all, just a, a huge welcome, Bruce. Hi, well, nice to be here. Thank you very much. The Open Road follows up one of your earlier memoirs, Rough Notes, and that the acts quite neatly as sort of compendiums to each other. Because it's your latest book, maybe it's just worth getting your feel for what you aimed for when you were writing The Open Road. Well, Rough Notes is very much um, music and career-oriented, and not just my musical career but a kind of an overview of music from what i would call the golden age of rock and pop you know starting in the 60s up until maybe the the 2000s you know um before all the sampling and streaming nonsense took over but um the open road is more i would say what i what i did in the space between the rough notes i so what what i did on my holidays book and it's I guess um, all my other interests, which um, I think are, are equally important to me, and maybe other people will find them interesting too. Uh, I mean, at least I've you've got to empty the well every so often to let it fill up again, you know, and I was carrying that stuff around for a long time. Absolutely, and reading both books, it, it just gives the space to cover a full, broad range of your life and career as well, which is, is really interesting to see. Right, well, thank you very much. I, I don't know how you managed to get hold of a village single, but there you go. <laughs> Let's cover that, because many people know you for your long-time association with Elvis Costello and the Attractions, but your musical journey, I mean, even before the village, has got quite a really interesting story. I mean, yeah. for example, in the mid-60s when you were based in Middlesbrough, you, you were yeah. playing around with Paul Rogers and Mick Moody. Yeah, yeah, well, we were teenagers, and uh, we met at the place where I worked as a uh, graphic designer, what used to be called a commercial artist, at the local newspaper in Middlesbrough. And Mick Moody and Paul Rogers were um, runners there. You know, I saw Mick Moody with the Paul Butterfield Blues Band album under his arm one day, and I thought, oh, I've got to talk to this guy, you know. And one thing led to another. They had a band called the Roadrunners. Paul Rogers wanted to, he was the bass player, but he wanted to go up front and sing and so the bass player's job became available so i was i was drafted in i was a fledgling bass player at the time but paul rogers wanted to be a singer up front a terrible decision i don't know what happened (laughs) (laughs) it was that 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 band that got you to london is that right yeah we turned pro together yeah we left we left middlesbrough slept in the van in a pub car park on the way down uh I left home, I'm very proud to say, with about eight pounds. Yeah. And the band split up after about a year, and um, Paul Rogers went off to join Free, so, or to form Free. And Mick Moody went back up north and um, eventually uh, gravitated to Whitesnake, and I eventually ended up with Peter Bardens, who was kind of a a well-known name in the music scene because his previous band, as you probably know, had yes. Peter Green and Mick Fleetwood in it So and Rod Stewart. So, 
he got a good pedigree then, you know. The village where we come in, that was the group that you had with Peter Bardens. Peter Bardens, yeah, and there's a three-piece. Um, yeah, it was kind of jazz R&B three-piece. So, and uh, that um, track he played was probably one attempt at, you know, how bands worked in the old days. They were club bands, prog bands, musical bands, and... Every band had to do the obligatory stab at making a commercial single, and that was probably what you played there. And so Peter <laughs> also recorded the solo album in that period, The Answer. He did, yeah. Were you involved yeah. with that? I was on that, yeah. I've read that Peter Green of Fleetwood Mac. Peter right? Green played the whole, did the whole album. It was right when he was, um, I think he just left Fleetwood Mac at that point. But he was very much, you know, he was still in his ascendancy, as it were, or or just about to start his non-ascendancy. But um, you've probably realised from reading my books that I hold him in the highest possible regard as a musician. And I think he's not only the best blues guitarist we've ever produced, but not only the best guitarist, but probably the best musician that's ever come out of this country. He, he, he was he's an absolutely stellar player and uh, I can't put anybody higher than Peter Green yeah. so the highlight of my my musical career was, was Peter Green got up and jammed with um, Village at the Marquee because we used to have guest musicians as part of our residency there and he got up and did um, some songs with us some not just uh, the instrumentals like the stumble and things but I mean that was the most joyous occasion musical occasion i can refer you to and then we did the album later he's still playing great but shortly after that he did that end of the game album which was a kind of rambling improvisation kind of grateful dead style and then he kind of disappeared didn't he for a while Mm. went and did odd things like grave digging and giving his money and guitars away and growing his fingernails. But bless him, he was a fantastic musician. In his 67 to 72 period, he was just untouchable. Absolutely. And, and the, the names you were associated with and played with in, in the 60s and 70s is just remarkable. That so many, two great musicians that um, have been on The Strange Brew before, Al Stewart as, as well as Rick. All right, and, OK. Yeah, yeah. A brilliant combination of, of Rick Wakeman's piano on News from Spain, one of Al Stewart's tracks, and, and you were on some of those early Al Stewart albums. Yeah, and Orange and Past, Present and Future. Yeah, we I did. Um, I was on sessions with Rick Wakeman. I mean, he was a character. I mean, you know what he's like. He was like that to start with. But um, and Tim Rennick on guitar, who um, who became an Uber session man. But Rick, if you know Al Stewart's catalogue, you know he did this extremely long epic ballad i think it was roads to moscow or napoleon or something one of those all done live of course in those days one long take and we were about nine minutes into the song and rick makeman left left the keyboards crept up behind al in the vocal booth and jabbed him in the ribs (laughs) and brought the whole whole thing to a halt i must say that um al showed admirable restraint but but Rick Wakeman's a, a character, all right. He used to do his um, 
impression of Mrs. Mills playing a Led Zeppelin medley. And if you know Mrs. Mills, yes. she was, uh, yeah. yeah, not everybody will know because she's from back in the day. But yeah, the housewife piano player yeah. uh, doing the, <laughs> you know, um, Al Stewart was a renowned wine expert. Oh, of course. He's, he's done an album yeah. about wine as well. Did he? Yes. Because he, he addressed the sommeliers convention in France about what in French. <laughs> so I saw his wine cellar when he moved to Los Angeles. He had a, a pretty, a, a bottle of Chateau Petrus on the table. <laughs> Like a mantle 
On the beaches And the crowds have gone I have left my song To be killed alone In Carvajal In Carvajal How was that in that period when you were starting to play on various sessions with, with artists? No, doing yeah, quite. Ended up doing ended up doing quite a lot of the folky yeah. sessions, like Ian Matthews and ah. and um, various things. So um, I, I was doing quite, doing a lot. I mean, a, a lot of them were just one. I mean, record deals weren't hard to get in those days. If you could write mm. a few songs and play strum a guitar. You usually got enough to make an album, and people did. And for a lot of them, that was the extent of it. But some of them obviously um, prevailed through talent. <laughs> so Quiver. So yeah, how did sort of, of Quiver happen? Quiver was a was a, a going concern as a band, and they weren't happy with the bass player. So I got drafted in to um, as a replacement bass player. 
we did an album, well, we did two albums uh, as Quiver and then hooked up with the Sutherland Brothers because um, I don't we weren't very prolific in the songwriting department or the singing, you know, stakes. So it seemed like a natural kind of merger. It does seem like a great partnership. You've got the Sutherland end, which is great songwriters, and, and yourself, Quiver, just a great band, including yeah. Tim Rennick. Yeah, we had to um, sort of jettison Quiver's um, rhythm guitarist songwriter, otherwise it'd have been four guitarists and stuff. So we had to go around to his house one day and do the dirty deed, you know. But uh, I think he was expecting it. But the Southerns, obviously, with being brothers and everything, they had that harmony thing going, you know, that you get with siblings. And uh, so that that's the songwriting and singing was all their department, and it was just guitar, bass, drums. I mean, he had got a, key, a keyboard player in as well, so it was, it was enough to cover all bases, as it were. Yeah, because uh, Sutherland Brothers and Quiver and, and, and songs like I Don't To Love You, but yeah. You Got Me Anyway, were bigger in the States and North, North America than the UK. Yeah, yeah. I think it was number one in Florida. <laughs> it was a top ten hit there in in, in the States, yeah. And um, you probably, as you probably know, we did um, a huge 60-date um, tour supporting Elton John when he yeah. just after he'd broken through. So we were playing... We'd gone from, you know, the marquee and stuff to um, the Hollywood Bowl and Madison Square Gardens and so forth.
as you say, I did quite. Some somebody once said, "Well, I'd have been happy with your career before the attractions." <laughs> so, so I could, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not being vain, but I, you know, I didn't, um, I did do consider myself to be a generation older than than Elvis, yeah, for for sure, you know. And then one, of course, one as you know, one of Quiver's biggest fans who used to come to all our gigs was. There was this guy in um, big flared uh, loon pants and who wanted to know everything, who turned out to be Pete Thomas, the, the drummer of the attractions eventually. So he, in fact, more or less got me the job in the attractions. I don't think Elvis was that keen. And Pete said to me, if you don't get this guy in, you're mad. So there you go. It was an ad in the Melody Maker, wasn't it, that you... It was, yeah. Bass rocking pop combo needs bass player. I think it's uh, something along those lines. I remember rock rocking pop combo. Anyway, slightly sort of one generation ahead of of Elvis, and you came in with flares and whatever. And Elvis was more kind of at the punk end of things. Oh, he was. You know, he was a Joe Strummer wannabe, and uh, I was still kind of throwback, probably. I mean, I wasn't wearing those tight jeans. I wasn't wearing big baggy flares either, but it was obvious you either had your hair combed back or your hair combed forward kind of thing. <laughs> and if you notice all the early attractions pictures, there's three guys with their hair combed back and one with his hair combed down. So <laughs> that's a bit of a giveaway for you. But it was absolutely the, the right decision of Pete to really encourage you to or encourage Elvis to get you into the group, because when you look at that early material that you feature on, and yeah. the bass line, for example, of I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea, yeah, it's, it propels the song. No, well, Elvis wanted to have a band of complete amateurs, you know, that couldn't play and embrace the punk ethos, but I'm not sure how well advised that was for someone who was preeminent songwriter of, of the decade, as it were. But uh, anyway, common sense prevailed. But that, this year's model album is very bass-driven, obviously, with things like Lipstick Vogue and Pump It Up and so forth. So, But um, that's some of my best playing, I think, even even today. But it's um, it was kind of like something that had been waiting to come out for ages. I mean, the 70s was a horrible period for music, as far as I was concerned, you know, with all the... You know the LA stuff, the 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 James Taylor stuff, and all that kind of thing going on. I remember in the mid seventies going to see the Jake Dials band first London gig and just running home, jumping in the air and screaming that there was something like that still alive, you know. And um, I was just dying to do something like that, and and obviously I don't know where all those parts came from but probably because i was working with somebody who was writing songs that i could relate to as well you know it wasn't all me it was bass parts as good as the song and the records as good as the song and the bass part Lips that are licks And other girls that is going to fix She gave a little flirt 
pump it up earlier in a way yeah. there are elements of that that go back to the 50s or or even the kinks oh yeah it's a it's a hybrid riff it's the everly brothers the kinks and richard ellen the voidoids all made into one riff i mean i could i've explained it in kind of detail and it's probably a bit boring to non-bass players but it is um it, yeah i think it's what i call organic sampling you know it's or it's just embracing the influences and moving them for another step forward it's not copying them it's just you know embracing the spirit of them i know pump it up was um was a kind of a riposte to sex drugs and rock and roll it's like it's all my brain and body needs and he's saying pump pump it up which has got a, is a triple metaphor for sex or drugs or rock and roll he can pump it up in all three departments but he's saying pump it up when you don't really need it so it was a kind of direct riposte to to ian jury's song some of those stiff tours with the blockheads and, and nick Lowe, what were they like well yeah so uh, i don't know that at that time ian jury was was the biggest star of the lot wasn't he because he'd actually got a hit mm. uh he had a hit before anyone else so um so it was early. It was early. It was our first tour, really, first proper tour. We'd done an American short American tour before the Stiff tour, but um, 
Uh, or was it? Or was it, no, it was the other way around, wasn't it? The stiff tour was the first tour we'd ever done. It would be difficult to tell you what the feeling was like because there's it. Um, there's so much you can see in retrospect. Yeah. I mean, at, at the time, it was just a load of Herberts on a bus, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then the rest was hysteria or history. Previously spoken to Howie Casey, who was part of the Rockestra band, yeah. and you were part of that just incredible lineup yeah. that, that played with Paul McCartney and Wings. Yeah. What are your recollections of? I mean, firstly, recording recording the song. Well, Howie Casey, I remember, was a, had a band called Howie Casey and the Seniors, yes. didn't he, in Liverpool, and they were like 
Sounds Incorporated, they were the go-to backing band for visiting American artists. But um, no, I mean, I was, we were rehearsing for Armed Forces at a rehearsal room up in the country somewhere, and somebody said, there's a phone call for you, you know, so I went over and I went back and um, went back to the rehearsal and said, Paul McCartney wants me to play on a record at Abbey Road. <laughs> you know, so I thought, I can tick that one off the list, you know. Um, it was funny because it was like a kind of... Um, it was like a, a what not closure exactly, but uh, the guitarists there were, 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 for instance, were Pete Townsend, David Gilmore, and Hank Marvin. <laughs> and Hank Marvin was the first—that was the first band I ever saw, Cliff and the Shadows in Panto. <laughs> David Gilmore, I knew really well because Quiver were managed by Steve O'Rourke, who also managed Pink Floyd. So Quiver supported Pink Floyd on a lot of festivals and gigs. And also uh, I was part of the Pink Floyd football team that played at weekends. So uh, and um, Pete Townsend, the first time I saw him was in a club in Middlesbrough when I went backstage and said, have you got any advice for an aspiring musician? And he said, yeah, take lots of drugs. (laughs) And uh, the next time I saw him, Quiver supported The Who on the tour when they were at the absolute height of their powers. And they did the best, well, probably the best live gig I've ever seen was The Who in Glasgow in 1971. That was scary, frightening. I mean, if you'd have told people to go out and pull Glasgow to the ground, they would have done It was it was absolutely frightening. So those three, I thought, well, those those three guitarists were all, all there was all a moment of significance, shall we say, in my um, musical history. And I thought that's kind of like a really neat thing to be with those guys playing, you know. And obviously, Paul McCartney's a different kettle of fish. But I, you know, I said to you, I. I've stolen so much from you, you know, and he picked a bass up and played the bass line to Chelsea. So I thought, that'll do. (laughs) That'll do. That was, you know, thank you very much. (laughs) And um, that's kind of my takeaway from it, you know, and then we did a live gig later. But yeah, very satisfying. As I said to someone, I was the only person, it was still early, early days, in the attractions career, I said I'm, I was the only person there who didn't actually have a trout farm <laughs> <laughs> or a farm or a lake, at least, you know. <laughs> you know, a memorable day, for sure.
contrast to certain elements of punk that you were all influenced by different styles and sounds and yeah i mean pete thomas was really a kind of country country rock guy i guess you know his previous bands were all had a very country element to them i mean elvis i don't know he he wanted to be the clash really but uh, steve naive's classically trained i come from um very eclectic kind of R&B, jazz, pop background. Yeah, and somehow it all made soup. <laughs> <laughs> and as things moved on with uh, Elvis Costello and the attractions, you've got albums like Get Happy, and you've got the Sam and Dave song originally, I Can't Stand Up For Falling yeah. Down, which is, it really sort of showcases that Stax R&B sound. Yeah, well, as you know, the original version of that's a, a slow ballad, isn't it? Yes. I can't stand up for falling down. We did it as um, an Otis Redding, I can't turn you loose kind of arrangement. But yeah, that's um, this year's model. Get happy in later Imperial Bedroom. I think of the th- my my three albums. You know that I would put on a CV or said, you know, if somebody said, can you play the bass? I said, well, listen to these and you tell me, and then. But Get Happy was was definitely um, the base, another bass-oriented album for sure. But I knew that stuff. In fact, I did a, I did a mixtape for everybody. It didn't start out being a kind of soul R&B album. It started out sounding like Blondie. It sounded like, in fact, as you've probably read, it sounded like the Jags. We sounded like our own sound-alike bands, <laughs> and and we both said this isn't this isn't happening. So um, the song B movie was was like hanging on the telephone or something, and we went out the pub, and I came came back and just started jamming it like a jazzy thing, and everybody joined in and that was it unrehearsed first take, and it was on the album, and then the, once we got a template. You know, I did a mixtape of um, of all all my kind of go-to R&B songs, Supremes and Booker T and different things, and we listened to Motown Chartbusters, and and then we just got on and finished the album. Then, but Steve Naive hated it because there was no when we did the country album, he was in his element, and I thought, oh God, this is like. You know, plod, 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 isn't it? Two-note bass parts. And and uh, it was the other way around when we did Get Happy, because Knives said, I hate this goddamn music. And <laughs> as Mitchell Froome once said, there's two types of playing, functional and creative, and sometimes you, <laughs> sometimes functional is what's called for, and um, sometimes you can be creative. I guess that's the beauty of a band as opposed to a... A, so- a solo artist where you just get that pot of ideas that come in and it's it's much more collaborative and you end up with something ultimately that is stronger yeah yeah sure sure i've done albums i was just talking to somebody the other day because it's the i think it's the 30th anniversary of the suzanne vega album yes. 99.9 and 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 some the people were talking about it and i was tagged in the conversation so i said actually that's one of the top five albums i've I've ever done in terms of music and enjoyment. The, the, the other three being the three I mentioned. You know, this year's model get happy in Imperial Bedroom. But after that, the Suzanne Vega album stands in the top five. And somebody said, "Well, how did you work it all out?" I said, "We nobody worked anything out. I just went there, heard the song, and played on it. And some, in some cases, it was it was the last thing on the track. You know, yeah. 
the guitar solo. We weren't in the studio in the room together. Richard Thompson played a guitar solo, but he was probably 5,000 miles away when I put my bass part on. So it can it can work the other way. I mean, Suzanne Vega is one of the best songwriters you'll find. So, so um, you know, it was all kind of worked out. So it was just up to me to hold my end up, as it were. be coming back to Suzanne Vega. Yeah. That leads on naturally to discussing Imperial Bedroom and a song like Man Out of Time is a great example of. Right. Working with an engineer producer like Jeff Emmerich, Hmm. who I also spoke to about Imperial Bedroom and how he approached the recording of those songs. And that lends itself back to the Beatles, where sometimes you've got best part of a take already and then you layer on the bass. Yeah, yeah. That's where I learned that Jeff Emmerich was the guy who first told me about that. And ever from that day onwards, when I did sessions, I said, I'm putting the bass part on last. Mm. And ever since then, that is exactly what I've done. Even now, I've just done a few sessions. And I said, from um, guys in America, said, send me the stereo mix of the track without the bass on. I'll put the bass on if you I don't want to hear any what what's on there already anything either and if you if you like it you like it if you don't you don't but I'll put the I'll put on what I hear uh, and that's the way I've kind of worked since Jeff Emmerich told me about it uh, apart from with Elvis of course because we played more as a band but session wise I've always stuck the bass on last but do you know the story about Imperial Bedroom is that we went away to Devon to rehearse and we learned all the songs up. 
Then when we got to the studio, totally changed the arrangements on the fly because uh, Tears Before Bedtime, which is a kind of New Orleans sounding track, was like um, that John Lennon starting over. It was a, you know, a slow blues ballad type thing and Beyond Belief was a, didn't even, even the words were rewritten in the studio. It was in, in the land of give and take and it suddenly became Beyond Belief and and, uh, you know, the story, Pete Thomas hadn't heard the new arrangement and he came in late one day with a hangover and I always said to him, right, go and put the drums on, you've got one go. <laughs> and that's why, if you listen to the track, the drums just mark time until right until the outro <laughs> when the drums kick in and it all plays. So you get these, um, I don't know if you call them happy accidents or if that's part of the creative process or what. You know, you don't just sit and... It's like life. You don't sit down one day and say, oh, I'm going to get the job when I'm 17, then and when I'm 20, I'm going to meet somebody and then get married at 23. Then when I'm 20, you know, in that life, nothing proceeds in that way at all. You have to grab hold of what gets thrown at you, I guess, in, you know, in terms of musical arrangement or anything. When it ran from you In a private detective overcoat Dirty dead man's shoes The pretty things of Knightsbridge Lying for a minister of state Is a far cry from the northern wind here at Tracer's Gate Cause the high Healy used to be Has been ground down And it listens for the footsteps That would follow him around The man of my love is a crime But will Been a millionaire looking for a partner with a tight grip on the short end of the public imagination for his private wife and kids somehow. Real life becomes a rumor. Days of such courage just speed and left his energy and sense of humor. He's got a mind like a sewer and a heart like a fridge. He stands to be insulted and he pays for the Love a man out of time. 
biggest wheels of industry Retire the shopping short And after dinner overtures And nothing but an afterthought Somebody's creeping in the kitchen There's a reputation to be made Whose nerves are always on a knife's edge Who's a plate polishing the blade Love is always covering up, cowering up on it You drink yourself insensitive and hate yourself in the morning were talking about how you'd add bass parts on or how a bass part would influence a track mm. but for me perhaps one of the great examples of a perfectly good song mm. but just lifted into a different arena through the bass part is every day i write the book yeah well a couple of bass playing magazines have cited that as as an example of what a bass part can do to a record so you may be not far off the mark there, but I mean, somebody said if you just go through that song and play the kind of root notes, standard bass line, functional bass line, the intro is just, it's just using different, inver- it's inversions of a chord. It's just that there's a, there's a triad, a three note motif, and you just change one note, but it changes that one note changes the three notes into a completely different chord. And I find that kind of um, what somebody said, the, the contrapunctal element, you know, it's it's what Bach was doing. Bach is the, is the grandfather of modern bass playing and all those, you know, well, even white a shade of pale is Bach, pure Bach, isn't it? And, and, yeah. and those descending bass lines. But it was a great epiphany for me when I realised how bass lines could work where you didn't just play root notes you can play 
and how you can use scales, how you can connect notes up and and use harmonies and counterpoint and things. It all kind of, I think that all came to me when when I started with the attractions. You know, I would play little snatches of melody in people's things, but the idea of I would say of almost writing a song within a song is what happened on some of the tracks and possibly uh, every day I write the book is a bit like that in places, you know. It's almost like you can you can listen to the song or you can listen to the bass part. Yeah, yeah. Or you can listen to the or you can listen to them both, obviously, but you can I've just been listening to um trying to learn a Steely Dan bass part. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> you know, and that's an from Josie, which is Chuck Rainey, you know, and I go, my God, that's that's what I've been trying to do, you know, and I think, how the hell does he, you know, how does the hell does he, and I thought, well, that's what, that's kind of what I do, but yeah, it's not me coming up with it, so I have to learn somebody else doing it, and it seems, wow, yeah, great bass part. By the mid-1980s, it, it seems that there was a, a divide between Elvis and the attractions and, and the sort of personal dynamics just weren't the same as at the start. Uh, you could say that. Yeah. I mean, I think he, I think he'd always had an eye to the long game myself, you know, to be in the elder statesman mm. to, um, go off and do Nigerian nose flute albums and stuff like that. Um, or string quartets and, you know, opera singers and mm. whatever. Yeah, I think the the we were poised to become a very big group around the time just before Get Happy when when that when the whole nonsense with uh, Stephen Stills and Bonnie Bramlett and all that bar fight business right. started, and we we were about to play Shea Stadium and there were two hundred and fifty thousand ticket applications, but that obviously was one of the thing that suffered. However, having said that, there's two things. I don't think Elvis ever wanted to be a real pop star. I think he wanted to be a musicologist or a, you know, a, a whatever, but not a pop, not really a pop star. And um, we were on that trajectory. And I thought, always thought there was an element of self-sabotage about, about the way that all happened. But um, I think if we had have gone down the timeline of fulfilling that gig and become, becoming maybe the biggest band around at the time, it was us or Springsteen, you know, we'd all be dead within a year. So I think I don't think I'd be here talking to you now of sound mind and body anyway. But that was kind of when we weren't we re we weren't going to be a big band and i think think yes as you say he, he went off and then did solo gigs and went off on tour with t-bone burnett and then he i think he had a slightly not i wouldn't say psychotic but slightly weird period where he decided he wasn't going to be elvis costello he was going to be declan mcmanus mm. declan patrick aloysius mcmanus things like that so and then we had that time when we did the um, King of America album where he had two bands in different parts of the studio, an American band and us. We'd obviously run out of um, loyalty points at that point. So we ended up playing on one track on that album. Um, and we were basically sitting around in L.A. in a hotel for three weeks. And um, he got the other guys in. So 
it all got a bit funny, yeah, a bit strange, and and then you know we came back and tried a retro. Uh, rediscover our roots with blood and chocolate and do another kind of Elvis and the attractions album and so forth. But, um, I think up till the Imperial bedroom is a golden period. Punch the clock's not too bad. Then the rest of it's not perfect. And I can't speak about the stuff that I'm not on really cause I don't listen to it.
rightly mentioned Suzanne Vega earlier, as well as her album, and actually the, the, the title track, 99.9 Fahrenheit Degrees. That's it, and, yeah. Um, yeah. That yeah. was a really interesting period for Suzanne, as she had the hit where DNA... Yeah, Tom's Diner. Yeah. In a way, some of that more experimental sound started to sort of creep into her music, and and that song in particular, where you've got the bass coming in, is branching out her style. I think that's possibly to do a lot, a lot to do with Mitchell, the producer, who she eventually married for a, yeah. for a while. That album, I, I went off to do it in Woodstock with them, and I was very much recruited by Mitchell. And again, a lot of the tracks were were done. Uh, I seem to remember. There weren't a load of us sitting in the room. There was just me, me, Mitchell and Suzanne. And I was in the control room putting the bass parts on, on in Liverpool and 99.9. I think there was a couple of tracks where we played, but, um, cause the drummer, the drummer on the album, Jerry Marotta, I think he lived in Woodstock anyway. So that kind of worked out, but we were, yeah, we were recorded in an old church in Woodstock not in actual Bearsville, where the band were, but, um, yeah, and then the same thing on the second, on the follow-up album, Nine, Nine Objects of Desire, I think I played on that as well, so that was done in New York, but that was, that was mapped out, the, the concept was already mapped out by Mitchell before we started recording, he, he knew what it was going to sound like thematically. <laughs>
it was Mitchell Froome that was the link when you were working with Tasmin Arch. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, it was Mitchell that was producing Elvis's um, Brutal Youth right. album that got me back in to, for my second stint with the band in, what, it was 94. Yeah, so Mitchell was uh, Mitchell gave me a lot of work uh, at one period, yeah. Yeah, so Mitchell was the link with Tasmin Archer, with Suzanne Vega and with Elvis. I was one of the people that bought Tasmin's album Bloom in the mid-90s when it came out. And, and right. Songs like Sweet Little Truth, and it just didn't get the push that, that No, it no, it's a, not a bad album at all. I, I, um, there's uh, some good stuff on it. Pete and me and um, Steve Donnelly on guitar, I think Mitchell probably did keyboards, and uh, yeah... Nothing wrong with it, but sometimes he, you know, I've I've got a, quite a few good albums in in you know in a cardboard box in the loft that yeah. never did what they could have done. I guess them's the breaks, as they say. In the last twenty years, you've um, devoted some more of your time to to writing. I'm more writing than I'm done done a lot of writing. I'm still doing sessions and things. Yeah. But um, I'm doing a lot of stuff for people who seem to be uh, seem to be doing an album at the rate of one track a year. <laughs> 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 I was saying to to my friend Barry at the bass centre because I I got a signature bass I market and in collaboration with him and I'm saying put this photo up. I said well, who's I'm, I'm doing session. He says but who with us? I can't tell you because they haven't finished anything and they won't want me preempting their mm. their timeline sort of thing. So anyway, but I have been writing. I've done my t- you know two memoirs now and and a lot of stuff about Bruce Lee and Tyson Fury, whose career is reaching a very interesting point at the moment. And is all this much of this information on your website? No, it's not on my website. Right. My, my website, well, I think half of it will be on brucethomas.co.uk, but the best thing is probably to go on Facebook. Right. And you find, and if you scroll through, you'll get an idea of the photos, you'll get an idea of what's going up. And I've, I've got to another, a Facebook kind of business, you know, writing page. Uh, and, a, and an ordinary Facebook thing, and I give up putting stuff on Twitter and Instagram. I can't be bothered with all that. <laughs> <laughs> I tried it for a couple of weeks, but oh no, this this is why I left home to become a musician, so I didn't work in a bloody office. <laughs> yeah, you'd spend all your time doing the admin. <laughs> yeah, doing admin all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I'll go out for a bike ride. Thank you very much. <laughs> Bruce, um, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and, and such an interesting career and much more before and after Elvis Costello and the attractions, of course. And this is captured in, in your earlier memory, Rough Notes, but the, the open road acts as a compendium to, to fill out those gaps as, as well in terms of your yeah. life. Yeah, yeah. Well put. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thanks again. Thank you. Am I a part of the latest thing? All the latest thing you let go. Who needs to know? Am I a part of another world that's turned me upside down? Why'd you put me under? Why? 
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.